0: Welcome to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez. I'm a journalist, an author, and importantly for this story, a cancer survivor. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. A cancer survivor so far. In this episode, I'm coming out the other end. Chemos over. Each day I feel a little more normal, but what is normal now? My life is marked for good by what I've been through what will continue to be with me, and what recedes in the rear-view mirror. It's a whole new world. Episode 8, A Whole New World. A few weeks earlier, I had been to the cancer center for my last chemo infusion. The oncologist had told me the effects of chemotherapy were cumulative would gradually intensify with each new treatment. And sure enough, as the machine droned and drop by drop allowed the toxic chemical oxaliplatin into my body, it got worse and worse. The drip, drip, drip that hadn't been so bad months earlier now racked me with nerve sensation, not pain exactly. It was like the nerve endings in my hands, feet, cheeks, Even the tip of my tongue didn't quite know how to cope with the chemical onslaught and were sending me everything they could throw at me. Heat, cold, pain, tingle, while throbbing to the rhythm of the blood coursing through my veins. I was still, calm in the bustle all around me. I got to know the exceedingly kind and caring nurses. Efficient, sympathetic and cheery who put in lines, pulled out blood, slapped on blood pressure cuffs, clipped pulse oximeters, and when it was all over, rewarded me with crackers and cranberry juice. It hadn't been a cold winter in Philadelphia, but I might as well have been a member of Shackleton's doomed Antarctic mission. Especially after an infusion session, I'd hit the street bundled up, overdressed in an attempt to shield myself from the intense sensation of cold. My oncologist said the pains I had in my hands and feet eventually went away in most people. A small percentage had neuropathy that lingers for years after chemotherapy. In a smaller share still, the pain is permanent. So far, it looks like I'm a member of that lucky few. A few weeks after the last infusion, I was also nearing the bottom of the last bottle of pills— You know, those pills in the hazardous material bottle, the ones I had been swallowing for months. I could now see the end nearing as I counted out the sets of four tablets, 2,000 milligrams morning and night, that made me feel terrible. Cancer treatment, it seems, was all a game of odds, percentages, chance, and calculation— The 4,000 milligrams a day I forced myself to swallow was really just a guess. The weeks and months of the specified course was a guess. They were educated guesses, based on results from thousands of patients, but for me as an individual, still just a guess. If I took them for another week, would my chances of recurring cancer go down? Perhaps, but probably not in a way measurable verifiable, that justified continuing to make myself sick, vandalize my body's production of cells, and spend thousands of bucks in insurance company money to do it. So, a balancing act. As I was getting down to my final doses, Christmas came. I spent a happy holiday feeling terrible, surrounded by friends and family, I ate food I love, but the sensation of taste was dulled. When I took a slug of a favorite wine, it hurt going down, as the nerves in my throat were now in full rebellion. Talking for more than a few minutes hurt. Doing a one-hour radio show hurt even more. But I needed the work, in part for the money, and in part to feel like I was still a conscious, contributing person, rather than only a patient. As I was getting ready to head out for New Year's Day dinner, I stared at the last dose, the final quartet of pills at the bottom of the bottle, and spilled them into my hand. I looked at them some more and thought about the odds that taking these last pills would change anything. I had taken my dose that morning and paid for it the rest of the day. In real life, Were these last 2,000 milligrams going to change the outcome? If I was on my way to full recovery, would skipping this last dose make it less likely? Probably not. If I was on my way to another bout of cancer down the road, would these four pills really lower my chance of recurrence? I doubted it. Then again, the internist had done his job. The gastroenterologist had done her job. The surgeon had done his job. The oncologist had done his job. My nurses had done their jobs. Now I had to do mine. I was understood to be keeping up my end of the bargain. Yeah, I followed the rules. I did what I was told. Past the tingling and burning and searing of the nerves in my throat, I swallowed those last four pills and headed out the door in trousers and a sport jacket that didn't quite fit anymore, and welcomed in the new year. I began that new year with no regular job, a lot of extra pounds, and significantly, two fewer cancerous tumors. This part of the task of staying alive was now complete. What was less clear was whether I would ever be the same person I was before all this started. I could lose the weight. As soon as I wasn't on the verge of nausea all the time, I would get going on that. My kids were relieved. My wife, who had taken care of me in ways large and small since I was a teenager, was relieved. The thing I no longer had on board? My feeling of invincibility. Not the kind superheroes have. Something different. A rough confidence that, within reason, I would always bounce back. I had burned myself as a baker, been hit by cars, cut and bruised and banged myself up, sat on planes for 10, 12, 14 hours without thinking for a second about what was in the air or whether deep vein thrombosis was going to get me. I had eaten food from dodgy stalls in street markets— Ridden motorbikes across rickety wooden bridges in Indonesia, been thrown from horses, kept my head in packed and panicking crowds during protest marches. I figured I'd always be okay, but now, my immune system shot, my oncologist warning me about being careful, keeping my distance. I suddenly thought twice about big crowds, about standing too close to other passengers on the subway about the people sneezing in the next row on a plane. Let's be clear, the illusion of invincibility was always an illusion, but it was a useful one. I now had to think about a new way of being in the world. I felt bad for a long time after the chemo ended, fatigued, prone to nausea, with nerve pain and slight confusion. I had to accept I was, for a while, fragile. So I took stock, tried to clear the cobwebs, and finally take a longer look down the road, as in, what would my 60s be like? All that thinking had to stand on the shaky foundations of a health crisis, feeling lousy, and suddenly, unsure about how sound I was or was ever going to be again. My hair hadn't fallen out, but Weirdly, because of what the chemo did to my cell creation, it also hadn't grown. So it felt weird, coarse, breakable. My nails also hadn't grown. And now, after months of not growing, were starting to split and crack and break. For months before the diagnosis, and in the months since, I had been eating everything that wasn't nailed down. At first, because my profound fatigue had me unconsciously trying to shove energy in. And then, after chemo began, because the only way I could avoid feeling nauseated was to eat. Fat but alive was a choice I was willing to make, but now my clothes hardly fit. The scars on my belly were healed, but sometimes acted up, pulsed, or felt sore or suddenly itchy. Just a few months later, I had a scare. My gastroenterologist suggested a follow-up colonoscopy just to see how I was healing after surgery. When I came to, instead of a quick and chipper tour of the photos of my insides, I got a grave, downbeat look. The doctor saw what she worried was new cancer. She wasn't sure. She took tissue samples. I was crushed. Eight months after surgery. Just a few months since ending chemo and, what, I might have cancer again? The prospect of going through it all over again, so soon, was devastating. It got really quiet around the house for the next few days until the pathology report came back. False alarm. It was just inflammation around the area where the two ends of me were sewn back together. That felt awful. Getting the good news wasn't a cause for celebration. I just took a deep breath with the relief that follows near-miss tension, like after a close call at an intersection, a brush with disaster. So where do I end up? A little more cautious, a little more careful, a little less confident, a lot more willing to go to the doctor regularly, a lot more likely to think about my health. What would I tell you if you get sick? Talk to the people you love about everything. If you're dying, how much do you really want to remain unsaid? Check your health insurance, what it covers, what it doesn't, and such things as copays and drug coverage. Think hard about the things you don't want to think about, like wills like life insurance, like specifying beneficiaries, and who takes custody of accounts. Think about what the end of your life will mean for everyone around you, not just yourself. And think about when you want to stop working, if you're lucky enough to ever be able to stop. In the years BC, that is, before cancer, if people asked me when I planned to stop working, my answer was never. I liked work. I liked what I was doing and figured as I got older, I might work less, but never stop completely. Now, life seems so accidental, so capricious, that the idea of continuing to work and work and then find you have a fatal illness just seems so awful that I do plan to stop, not just yet. I've got a lot of places I want to go again, things I want to try, places I want to see while I'm still mobile and healthy enough to enjoy it. Getting bundled onto a plane to be rushed to some bucket list destination before I croak now seems terrible and possible. I feel like I'm finished with cancer, but I now live in its shadow. I'm fully aware cancer may not be done with me. Your chances of facing the disease again depend on age, general health, stage at diagnosis, a lot of things. Recurrence rates vary widely among people who are cancer-free after treatment, from one out of six people treated for colon cancer to more than eight out of ten who are treated for ovarian cancer. Among pancreatic cancer patients, fully one-third have a recurrence a year after surgery, glioblastoma the cancer in the brain that killed Senators Ted Kennedy and John McCain and my mother has basically a 100% chance of recurrence.
1: Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast
0: I have colonoscopies more often than the average person, and by the way, stay on schedule with your colonoscopies. Having them is a drag, but much less of a drag than having cancer. I have to have the occasional MRI to look for potential trouble, spots that pick up the dye that may be tumors. My oncologist says there are two target dates for colorectal cancer patients. No recurrence three years after surgery, and five years after surgery. After three years, the chance of recurrence declines sharply. After five years, it drops to the chances of a new diagnosis for any other person your age. I'll aim for that and figure out what happens next. Making the five-year mark feels like a big thing. When I see someone I haven't run into for a while and they ask, just as social grease, hey, what you been up to? I have to think for a second. I have to do a quick relationship biopsy. Is this just a gentle, fact-free encounter? Or is this person close enough to me that I should give them the real answer? Oh, busy. Podcast, a new book, daughter got married. That's a nice, breezy, general answer. For people who I think I should give a more complete answer, I'm good. I had cancer for a while. That sucked. But I'm okay now. When you feel a change in your overall health, don't ignore it and trust that you can just push through it. I learned the hard way. Bad idea. We cancer people are members of a worldwide involuntary sorority or fraternity. We compare notes, talk about people who didn't make it, express our own hopes for the future. One friend struggled with melanoma for years through repeated surgeries and treatments, big ropey scars on his head, wearing hats all the time to cover up the bandages. Then it finally got him. He had kept his good humor and his good sense. He wanted to stay alive. He did everything he could. And then he just ran out of time. His stubbornness and matter-of-fact good cheer were both examples for me. When I asked my daughter what she remembers about that time, she talked about being present for a conversation with my oldest friend. She recalls him telling me that I would fight this no matter what, and that I said in return, well, not no matter what, and proceeded to mention the terrible things some people do to remain alive in total misery. As part of her work... My daughter counsels and keeps company with dying people. She remembers me telling her, it's a terrible thing to love life too much, and says she's thought a lot about that ever since. I do love my life. Having to contemplate losing it made me even more clear, during what was already a challenging time in my working life, just how much I loved it what I was grateful for, and what I had no time for, what I was going to miss if I had to leave. Those are all good experiences to have and worthwhile things to think about, but if you don't have to get cancer to do it, so much the better. At the age I am now, the numbers say I can expect to live another 18.2 years. Now, there's a lot of room in that average for... Marathon runners and guys who tuck away two hamburgers in a big gulp at lunch. Will I live into my 80s? Heck, I don't know. I'd like to. That's the best I can realistically do these days. The assignment now is to make whatever time is left rewarding, active, clear-eyed about how fragile this whole thing is. Make the best of it. You just don't know how much time is left. Thanks for listening to the final episode of the series, The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. Even if your prognosis is good, what you've been through never really leaves you. In much the same way the chemo dug down into every cell of your body, the experience of cancer can't help but change your emotional reflexes, your sense of safety, the way you think about the future. These aren't the things I would have chosen to happen to me, but they are the things that happened, as they do to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Maybe even you, or someone you care about. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and pass it on to others facing the same challenges. Somebody it might help, not only to find out how it goes, but maybe to compare notes or listen for insights that can comfort or reassure. Someday, once again... My body may be trying to kill me, but for now, we are once again on the same side. Buddies. As it turns out, you can never completely drop your guard. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider writing a review or sharing with a friend. This is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks go to producer and audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.